0: Welcome to Liberty Island. How much effort do you think it took to raise Lady Liberty's torch above the New York Harbor? Today, technology allows us to collect donations from thousands of people in a click of a button. But in the 1880s, crowdfunding was a far greater endeavor. And yet, the Statue of Liberty was made possible only through the donations of hundreds of thousands of everyday French and American citizens. I am Diane von Furstenberg, and this is Raising the Torch. On this episode, we will meet Melissa Magnuson Kennedy, a supervising ranger for the National Park Service. American University historian Alan Krupp and Barry Marino, historian for the Ellis Island National Museum of Immigration. Together, we will learn about the fascinating fundraising tactics used to construct, transport, and erect this beautiful, beloved global beacon.
1: The Statue of Liberty was really of the people in that the people of the United States and the people of France, like normal, regular, everyday people, not, not necessarily the super wealthy, not the super powerful, it was everyday folks contributing toward the fundraising efforts and so paying for the Statue of Liberty and the pedestal. My name is Melissa magnuson Kennedy, and I'm a supervisory park ranger at the Statue of Liberty National Monument. The Statue of Liberty was a gift from the people of France to the people of the United States, but it was also meant to be a joint gift. And so the people of France were responsible for fundraising and paying for the statue itself, and the people of the United States were responsible for fundraising and paying for the pedestal on which the Statue of Liberty stands.
2: The cost of the statue in, in the days in which it, the fundraising took place was something like 300,000, and this would be millions and millions of today's currency. I'm Barry Moreno, librarian and historian at the Statue of Liberty National Monument and the Ellis Island National Museum of Immigration. The original plans for funding the Statue of Liberty were initiated by Edward de Laboulaye. Baboulet suggested it be a partnership in funding, and Bartoli concurred with this idea, and the two men agreed that the pedestal should be funded by the Americans and the great statue by the French. So this would draw the Americans into a close relationship with the French, and it also would would cement ties of union with the Americans in a great project, a project never before undertaken in the history of, of the world. I'm Alan Kraut, University Professor of History
3: at American University in Washington, D.C. Bartholdi's basic notion was that the French people could be persuaded to give this gift, that it would be a matter of national pride for them, but they too, just
2: like those in the United States, had to be persuaded. The French national government uh, remained out of the picture. This was private fundraising for the Statue of Liberty. The project was a private group. It was a faction of French people that were attracted to the idea of liberty and republican constitutionalism. The passion that's aroused within the French populace
3: for this statue is partly... Uh, their own concern with issues of liberty, the debates that had been going on in France over the future of France. Uh, Would it be a a monarchy? Would it be a republic? And also the tremendous national pride that the French took in having, um, from their point of view, given birth to the United States or helped in a most difficult birth, uh, the birth of of a republic on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean.
1: There were fundraising efforts on both sides of the Atlantic, and people in the United States were not really forthcoming with their money. There was a number of campaigns, and yet there were continual delays with the building of the pedestal because there was not enough money being actually raised.
3: On this side of the Atlantic, the amount of funds at first that were needed were relatively light. After all, this was a gift from France to the United States— It was only when it was clear that there was a need for a pedestal on which to put the statue that fundraising had to occur within the United States. The government of the United States was not involved. This was going to be a private endeavor.
2: Fundraising for the pedestal was initiated in 1877. The fundraising was geared towards the wealthy. It was dinners, parties, it was concerts, musical events... And um, this did raise thousands of dollars from the rich. The next phase of the fundraising shifted from the wealthy classes because the building uh, for the pedestal got to be more and more complicated. Uh, There wasn't quite enough to finish the job in terms of money. Soon the pedestal committee found that their coffers were empty and they had to halt the construction of the pedestal. And the statue, meanwhile, had actually arrived. Other cities
3: did not hesitate to say that if New Yorkers did not want the statue, if they were not willing to support the pedestal for the statue, uh, the statue could always find a home elsewhere in their cities.
1: So eventually, Joseph Pulitzer, of Pulitzer Prize fame, came up with really an ingenious idea, basically crowdsourcing. (laughs) So he had this idea where if you would donate Any amount, it didn't matter the amount, it could be a nickel, it could be a thousand dollars, whatever, whatever you can afford to the campaign, he would print your name in the New York World, which was his newspaper. And so people, of course, like, hey, who doesn't want their name in the paper? So people would donate and get their name in the paper. Now, it was also brilliant as a newspaper owner, because they didn't say when your name would be printed, and so people would go out and buy the paper every day looking for their name,
2: and then if it wasn't there, they'd buy it again. Only the poor people, only the ordinary working men and women, the housewives, their husbands, the kids, immigrants, you know, maids in, in hotels, anyone who wants to donate. So they raised $102,000 in a very short time, a couple of months or so, and um, it was astonishingly quick. People said in pennies, nickels, dimes, dollars, whatever they had. I think what made Pulitzer's campaign
3: unique and special was the enthusiasm that Pulitzer, through his newspaper, stirred in the overall project and in the involvement of rank-and-file Americans, no matter how poor they were, no matter how young they were. And that spirit, the spirit of the democratization of the funding of the statue, I think is what's important. Had they the will, uh, a handful of New York millionaires could easily have funded that pedestal. But how much more appropriate to have the pennies of schoolchildren and the coins of people of very modest means. Those who had been born in America and those who had come to America to fund this statue. Now it really is a people-to-people endeavor. The the funding of uh, the pedestal in the United States is part of a larger portrait, if you will, of philanthropy. And how philanthropy occurs Uh, in countries that are monarchies with a very uh, extensive, wealthy, controlling aristocracy, uh, it's preferred that the philanthropy come from the top down. In the United States, however, uh, it's a democracy, and we want what we would broadly call buy-in to different
1: projects. The Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation is our nonprofit partner and they have been raising money to really help the Statue of Liberty for a number of years. So in the 1980s, they started and were doing a lot of fundraising just to have the restoration of the Statue of Liberty in the 1980s. So coming up on the statue's 100th birthday, so to speak, um, we realized, oh, there's some things that need to be fixed, updated, and so forth. And so the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation was formed to really kind of raise money for that endeavor. And now with this fundraising effort, uh, raising a lot of money through a variety of kind of avenues to be able to support this museum.
3: Federal money is not involved. It is, as a, a National Historic Site, and a federal site under the supervision of the U.S. Department of the Interior, the Park Service. Uh, But the actual building and the actual construction and everything else is private. Only when the funding is private can you say that this is not a political act uh, of one government toward another, but rather from one people to another. Diane von Furstenberg is clearly the person who has spearheaded the fundraising for the new museum on Liberty Island. Without the efforts of people like Diane von Furstenberg, it would be absolutely impossible to undertake large projects like the museum.
0: For years, the foundation wanted me to come on the board, and uh, I didn't really need to go on another board Stephen uh, Briganti, who's the president of the foundation, came to me and he had read my book. And in my book, I talk about my mother. And my mother had been a prisoner during the war. She was in a concentration camp for 13 months, but she survived. And I was born 18 months after she survived. So she wrote me a little note saying, God save me so that I can give you life. By giving you life, you gave me my life back. You are my torch of freedom. So he underlined the torch of freedom, and he came to the book, and he said, you've got to do this because your mother said you were the torch of freedom. So I said, okay. And then I got involved. I raised $100 million. I mean, not all me, but I certainly raised three quarters of it myself. And it was actually easy, because when you start to talk about her and what she represents, just people somehow get moved.
1: The new museum is exciting for us because it really allows more people to be able to access and learn a little bit more deeply about the Statue of Liberty, to see some of the items that were used originally in fundraising well over 100 years ago, to see a little bit better the process of making the Statue of Liberty. Even though we think of it as a work of art, it's also an engineering marvel. And so parts of the museum will really help our visitors to learn a little bit more about that.
0: The great thing about having a museum is that people who will go there not only will see the magnitude of the statue and what she represents in New York, on that little island, with the extraordinary view of New York, but also they will understand the story, how it came about. And it's funny because it's normal, regular, people who have given money to raise this woman who is the symbol of freedom and welcome you know and at the bottom at her feet she has the broken chain she has the torch the light she is liberty and nothing is more precious and beautiful than liberty on the next episode of Raising the Torch.
3: Because the concept of liberty is controversial, a statue that supposedly represented, embodied the concept of liberty would almost of necessity be controversial itself and the object of inspiring disagreement and discussion of exactly what liberty means and exactly what this statue ought to mean.
0: Join us as we find out more about the fascinating history of the Statue of Liberty.
1: Raising the Torch is a limited series podcast from the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island Foundation and Frequency Media. Narrated by Diane von Furstenberg. Executive produced by Michelle Corey and Alex Loomis. Produced by Chloe Wilson. Content strategy and research by Jessica Olivier. Sound design by Cooper Skinner. Music by Adam Poulin. Sound engineering by Josephine Neonai and Paul Ruist. Recorded at WAMU in Washington, D.C., Argo Studios in New York City, and Listen Up Audio in Atlanta. Special thanks to Alan Kraut, Melissa Magnuson-Kennedy, Barry Marino, and the joint efforts of National Park Service and Statue of Liberty Foundation employees for helping to bring this story to life.